0: Oh, hey, didn't see you there. Don't mind me just typing on my quirky typewriter keyboard. For anyone who doesn't know, this is a keyboard that was inspired by a typewriter. So it has actual keys, a return key, and a spot to put your iPad to type on. It's been so fun to play with, and we have one quirky keyboard to give away in our giveaway this week. If you go to mission.org giveaway, you can enter for a chance to win, or you can just listen to me type. We also have a second product to give away this week in our giveaway. It's the Muse 2 Brain Sensing Headband. I really like their catchphrase. Sitting down is just the beginning. What's really cool about this headband is if anyone has ever tried to meditate before and you're like, man, I'm just anxious about this. I can't stop thinking about the day. So many things going through my mind. Calm down, Stephanie. It's time to meditate. This headband is really nice because it actually has sensors that provide real-time feedback on your brain activity, your heart rate, your breath, and your body movements. And it helps really guide the meditation experience. So we're giving away one of these one of the quirky keyboards, go to mission.org slash giveaway for a chance to win and good luck.
1: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi
0: there, and welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Neil Stevenson. Neil is a New York Times bestselling author who is best known for his speculative fiction books such as Fall, Cryptonomicon, and Snow Crash. Much of Neil's writing focuses around technology such as virtual reality, drones, space travel, and what the future might look like with these tools. Neil has also worked as an advisor for Blue Origin, a company funded by Jeff Bezos focused on building a road to space with reusable launch vehicles. In this episode, Chad and Neil discuss the difference between mythology and storytelling, what life in space would look like, and how Neil draws inspiration for his books.
2: Today's guest is Neil Stevenson. Neil, you don't need any introduction. Our audience knows about you. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me on your program.
2: Definitely. So you're calling us from LA. You mentioned that you're out there traveling a little bit. Um, You're getting ready for the book tour the new book fall recently came out. So could you tell us a little bit about what that book is? And you're speaking to an audience where, uh, cryonics is a typical topic of conversation on a weekend night.
3: Okay. Well, you know, I'll say it's, it's an exploration of what, what could go right and wrong with attempts to, uh, extend our lives into the digital domain. So, um, it uses some characters from uh, a previous novel of mine called Reamdi, but it's not really a sequel, particularly. It concerns uh, a wealthy individual who uh, suddenly, unexpectedly passes away. It turns out a while back, he signed a, um, a will saying that if he passed away, he was supposed to be preserved and hopefully brought back to life. Uh, his family members and friends then this kind of falls into their lap all of a sudden, and they have to... Figure out what to do. He ends up getting digitally scanned, and later on, later get uh, so uploaded, and is the first person to be so uploaded. Uh, and then it's this—the this story kind of takes off off from there, I guess.
2: Yeah, and uh, the he that you mentioned is uh, Richard. His nickname's Dodge, uh, and he's a uh, he's a tech billionaire. So this is the first, I guess, segue and question that I've. Really wanted to ask you for a while, which is, you know, tech billionaires. They they show up periodically in your work. What's the reason for that? Uh, do you view these characters as fascinating? Um, were you inspired after spending so much time around them or working with them? What's the reason for including them as characters?
3: So it's the reality of of the world we're living in today that there's you know so like surprisingly large number of these individuals who have amassed a huge amount of, of money and they are fixtures in the the sort of tech business world we read about them all the time and they have a great deal of freedom of action right i mean you take say elon musk you know if he if he gets interested in something he is able to dive into it and pursue it with a huge amount of uh, resources at his disposal so so I feel like it's a, uh, that is how things are right now. So to begin with, I'm not like stretching reality or, or creating a situation that's fantastic that's in any way. Um, and it, from a storytelling point of view, it, it's a convenient way to set up uh, interesting situations. You know, when sure. you get somebody who's got that much freedom of action, uh, then whatever they're interested in, whether it's a, a good idea or a bad idea, they're able to sort of execute on it. As
2: a writer, does that give you more flexibility to be creative with the character? Uh, and does it give you more options for, say, decision trees or um, possible storylines?
3: I think it just gives more options for how that character exes their good or bad or neutral uh, characteristics, right? So. Sure. It, uh, most people uh, operate in a world of constraints as to i mean they may have interesting ideas they may have uh, passions or hobbies or or beliefs that are very important to them but there's only so much that a normal person can really do that they've got to pay the mortgage and you know put the kids through school and all of that stuff uh, with in the case of of characters like this um, they they can pretty much express uh whatever it is they're interested in
2: sure and when you're writing a book like this that that tackles uh pretty pretty serious topics um is there any inspiration from the past so was like you know was dante's inferno uh an inspiration or are are there any basically books that um really gave you the nudge you needed to start fall and finish fall
3: yeah i mean and they're they're uh, some of them are called out directly. So uh, the the Greek myths and particularly Dolaire's book of Greek myth, which is a children's story that's that's a very popular illustrated version of the Greek myth, um, Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, the Bible, Lord of the Rings. It might, it might help to explain that in the book, kind of what happens is that people come back into existence in a uh, a new verse that's uh, getting built um, as they, as they occupy, they're kind of making it, but they, they don't really have clear memories of the life that they lived before. Um, and so uh, what tends to happen is they recapitulate a lot of the myths and religious ideas that were kind of uh, ingrained into their, their brains when they were alive, whether that be uh, a, a religion like the Bible or a mythology or uh, pop culture um, uh, mythology like uh, Lord of the Rings.
2: Neil, when you're thinking about topics like uh, religion or myth, these are topics and words that mean really different and radically different things to, to different people, depending on who you ask. So when we take a, 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 a word like mythology, um, let's start with let's start with that. How do you define mythology, and then then how uh, and how do you approach mythology in your own work?
3: Well, it's any uh, body of, of stories. Typically, it's not authored by any one person. You know, it's it's folklore, and um, typically it is an attempt by people to explain why. The world is the way it is, how it came into being, um, uh, ex- how to explain why things aren't perfect, you know, the problem of evil, uh, to explain kind of who's in charge, what are the powers that be. So, of course, there's mythologies all over the, the world. Um, yeah, I've sort of drawn on a couple of them um, in, in this book. I think are seeking to uh, fulfill the same psychological need that people have—to feel like someone's in charge, to understand mysterious natural phenomena, uh, to to understand why uh, why why there's good and evil in the world, and and what happens uh, to uh, you know a sense of divine justice, what should happen uh, to evildoers, um, you know, in the afterlife or what have you.
2: Do you think that there are enough um, serious mythological thought experiments or uh, stories that exist right now? Like, are, are there enough stories or tragedies or plays um, for our, our culture to be refreshed and to survive? Or are we going through a period where there's like maybe a lack of good mythologies, or myth- maybe there's a lack of mythologies that are going to last for a long period of time going forward? Um, Would you agree with that? Or do you think that we're going through a period where...
3: It feels to me like there's a lot of them.
2: Do you think any of them will last a long time?
3: Well, I mean, which reboot of Spider-Man are we on at the moment? (laughs) Yeah, how how many reboots of of Spider-Man? Like when I was a kid, I can remember I had an album, an LP, that was a radio play about Spider-Man. And it had Doc Octopus, it had Doctor Strange, all the same characters. You know, it was, uh, I would listen to it on the, my dad's stereo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's totally believable that a thousand years from now, Spider-Man will still be uh, a, a long-running character. You know, we'll get, get rebooted in a few years um, for a new generation of viewers or whatever they have a thousand years from now.
2: Sure. So one of our uh, in- investors, kind of like a mentor uh, to me, He's he's really fond of talking about how mythologies are what they're basically stories we tell that are useful, but they're rarely true. Uh, whereas a religion is something that we tell that is, uh can be really useful. Um, how do you define religion and are there any uh, maybe religious movements that you're excited about or uh, do you think that religion is evolving now in our current culture?
3: Well, I think... Um I don't think there's really a hard line that you can draw between religion and mythology. So, um, like when, um, when Christianity was getting started, the dominant religion was, you know, in in that area was the Roman, uh, pantheon Jupiter and Minerva and all of those. And, um, at the time that was totally a religion, uh, later on, um, as people stopped practicing that, um it it got sort of downgraded or reclassified as a mythology? A mythology is just a religion that has been um that's no longer being practiced
2: authentically or something.
3: Yeah, but that people keep retelling the stories because they're they're good stories. Gotcha. What was the second half of the question?
2: Yeah, the the second half of the question is really do you see new religions emerging, or do you see existing religions going through uh, reformations, or do you think that religious innovations are pretty uh, stagnant a- at the moment?
3: That's well, an interesting question, right? I mean, I I think that, you know, so uh, like Mormonism is a relatively recent new religion that, that came along, and and, and, you know, got started in, in the East Coast, but the people who followed that religion all sort of went to uh, Utah and set up, set up a, new, uh, a new place there. And that sense of, of uh, being separate uh, from the rest of the world is I think probably was key to enabling them to that all work. Um, I'm curious as to whether you could still pull that off in the internet Era when right. uh, everything's so networked, and anyone would do Google searches or what have you to um, to get different perspectives on things. Right. On the other hand, uh, we're seeing that social media is pretty good at creating bubbles. Sure, <laughs> the only input from the people who agree with you. <laughs> so it's an interesting question.
2: Yeah, do those? Uh, let's just for argument's sake, maybe call those bubbles or pockets uh, islands that exist on on the internet. Um, Do you see positions maybe where uh, these islands are sufficiently isolated, but also offer uh, maybe like voluntary access to the mainland or something? Um, Because I I feel like if we're going to have an internet where new things are allowed to emerge, there's going to have to be spaces and islands for experimentation. Um, do you think that we have enough of these on the internet right now? Uh, are, are we allowed to be weird enough online or do you think that the internet isn't weird enough yet
3: to have a civilization at all? You've got to be able to agree on what's real. Yes. And that's so obvious and fundamental that we kind of overlooked it for a long time. We didn't realize it was there. That's been taken away. Uh, and so now you can go join an island, uh, live in a bubble that has its own uh, opinions as to what reality is. And um, and when that happens, um, it becomes impossible for kind of all functions of civil society to keep on, on opting. You know, it's a serious uh, problem for us right now. I'm not seeing, um, I'm not seeing, a lot of headway being made towards uh, fixing that problem.
2: I definitely agree. I, I don't think that there are nearly enough uh, exit points, maybe from bubbles and islands online into the real world, where you can uh, come together with others and agree on what's re- what's real. Basically, um, I think this this brings us to an interesting subject, which is uh, whose role is it to start solving this? And you know, is it the role of corporations to create some type of artificial adversity in the real world. Um, I know people like General Stanley McChrystal have advocated for, you know, two years of nonviolent military service, things like that. Um, What does the answer look like? And uh, obviously it'll be multifaceted, but uh, what do you think uh, that answer looks like?
3: I just think that we have humans in the loop of of social media and it's not a answer that um, social media companies like to hear because their whole business model and the, uh, the the secret to their being so valuable is doing everything algorithmically and not having to have humans in the loop. You know, as long as you keep humans out of the loop, you can scale these things really big and really fast. You know, algorithms get gamed really easily and uh, uh, ultimately to, to address these kinds of problems. Um, you've got to have basically human editors uh, exercising some discretion and making some, some judgments.
2: Yes. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, what, what's the role to, for if any, for uh, sci-fi authors to kind of maybe coax a more optimistic version of the future into existence is, do you view that that's a uh, something that they should be focused on? Or do you think that, Sci-fi authors should just be having more fun with their work and taking more risks. Um, What's your thought process like there?
3: Well, I uh, was part of a project a few years ago called Hieroglyph, which was all about trying to put optimizations up on the page as sort of pole stars or symbols that um, builders could work towards um, in the name of uh, creating optimistic new um, projects. In the future. So we came out with an anthology built around that theme. And uh, again, I think what I was missing at the time was this element of uh, uh, that it's all founded upon having a kind of civ- a functioning civil society in which people agree on facts. So what we were writing about Optimistic Visions, that sand was being kind of washed away from a, from beneath our, our foundation. Now, I think what needs to happen is uh, some kind of solution to that problem. And so far, um, I'm not seeing a way forward on that front. Right.
2: If we had to try to pinpoint or speculate as to what the challenges are, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is that um, so I, I'm a big proponent of McLuhan's idea that w- w- we're still basically suffering for a lot of the uh, trade-offs of print technology. So we still think very linearly uh, linearly to the point where it might, um, it might really be inhibiting us from doing great work in the real world. Um, do you think McLuhan was onto something there? And do you think that we're still living in uh, a print-based world? And is this a bad thing or a good thing?
3: Well, I certainly think we're living in a story-based world. I think that we're kind of almost hardwired to process things through the lens of stories, which are linear, which are linear narratives, um, and I think that's a uh, a thing that goes back um, probably to the early evolution. Of, you know, what makes humans different from uh, from other primates. Um, Like I think if you have the ability to take some experience and reduce it to a story, and then you can tell that story around the campfire um, you can learn the people listening to that story can learn something important without having to go experience it themselves. Right. So if I get, if I'm living in the Rift Valley a couple of million years ago and I get chased by some hyenas and have to climb a tree. Uh, I can tell that story to a family around the campfire later, and by uh, visualizing that in their minds and experiencing the same terror that that I experienced, um, they then know um, to avoid that kind of danger without having to personally go through that experience.
2: Oh yeah, that that ability to uh, to transmit programs and have them be stored uh, very effortlessly on you know a human neural network is so, so important to our survival. Is there uh, a time period where you see that? Do you see that changing in the, in the new future with technologies like Neuralink and with some of the, t- the technologies that you uh, speculate about and bring up in fall? Um, how, how close are we to uh, a lot of these technologies and how close are we to being able to maybe speed up the acquisition of learning through stories and narratives?
3: Well, kind of what I'm doing uh, in fall is uh, asking that question as opposed to answering it. So if that's a topic you're interested in, I think there'll be a lot of food for thought in fall because we have both, of the, both points of view kind of represented by different people. We end up with two powerful figures in the afterlife um, is uh, kind of going about it in a ad hoc disorganized way and, and recapitulating a lot of the good and bad features of uh, the world that uh, we all came from. And then there's another, uh, his sort of adversary is someone who specifically doesn't want that uh, his plan is to kind of uh, make the afterlife fundamentally better and different and re-architect the way the brain works so that it can uh, sort of link together in a mesh with other brains and communicate in a nonverbal, nonlinear fashion. And so I don't like to try to deliver uh, pat, uh, fixed answers to big complicated questions like that, but I do like to, you know, to, to ask those questions and, and try to provide some food for thought. Is
2: it exciting for you knowing that after a new book like this gets published, that thousands of the uh, smartest people in the world are going to be running that thought experiment themselves? Um, is is that like? Does that provide a thrill for you?
3: It would be a little presumptuous to expect that. Well, n-
2: not not expect it, but it it is uh it is something that happens. Like so, for people that don't know, like when you a new book of yours comes out in uh, Silicon Valley, it's like. Not everybody, but quite a few people, kind of like take a holiday and, and read it right away to just yeah talk about it and think about it. So sorry, go ahead.
3: Oh no, um, the I you know as with any book, I I, I put it out there, not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, I hope that uh, people will enjoy it, and find it interesting. Uh, a lot of what people seem to expect uh, and want from books is something that combines a good story with. Um, some interesting ideas. And, um, I certainly think there's plenty of both in fall, but all I can do is put it out there and, uh, wait and see what happens.
2: I love it. So, uh, so writing a book is a really lonely task, uh, for some people, other authors love it, or they oscillate between loving it and hating it. Um, what's that process like for you and the, the story and the example we just mentioned, um, how does that play into it? Uh, I'm just I'm looking for ideas and maybe stories that you have about um, what the craft of writing means to you, or do you, do you view it as uh, just a trade? Yeah, do you view it, do you view it as a trade or as a uh, kind of like a higher art?
3: Mm, a trade. Yeah, I think trying to conceive of it as fine art is um, I don't think it's wrong, but uh, I do think there's two general styles of fiction writers, and there's a group that um, is ma- basically making, practicing a trade in making pop culture, and I'm one of those, and there's a group that, for whom it's kind of like in the same category as a ballet or an oboe concerto, you know, it's um, it's a, a fine art, and, and there's nothing wrong with either of those of you, but you sort right. of have to be clear, clear about which one you are. Sure. So, I find that if I try to think of it as an oboe concerto, it just creates a high degree of self-consciousness and um, leads to all kinds of anxiety about whether it's all being artful enough, you know, and in my experience, writing has a lot more in common with something like making cabinets or playing soccer. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things where if you do it a lot, you get good at it. And you kind of know you have a sort of confidence, you know, if you've been a cabinet maker for 30 years and someone asks you to make a chest of drawers, you're like, okay, I got this. Right. It might look like you're doing really difficult operations from the point of view of someone who's never made a cabinet before. But if you've learned that skill, you know, that trade, um, it's not easy, but um, it's something that you know how to do.
2: When you're thinking and and approaching writing uh, like a trade, are there a lot of guidelines that you like to follow or do you just like to keep your writing processes uh, private because you know they work for you um, and that's what works? Uh, Or or do you like to put them out there and get feedback and things like that? Um, Or do you you view this process as something that's like private and more creative should just uh, shut up and do it instead of talking about it?
3: Well, I, I don't presume to tell others what they should do. Sure, sure. In my way is to, uh, I work alone. I don't uh, solicit feedback until something's done. And then uh, I'm basically getting feedback from a very small number of, of people. And um, the process can be a little different for every book. I, I tend to uh, kind of reinvent the process a little bit um, to suit the needs of a particular book like in the case of fall for example there was almost no research because it's all just complete just making stuff up and writing it down uh and so there was no need to keep track of a lot of notes and a lot of information about the project you know it was just sit down and and try to tell story every day
2: sure and when it comes to doing work that's outside of writing i know recently you've uh talked a little bit about being the chief futurist of Magic Leap. And then if we take it back even further, I think you were the first uh, team member at Blue Origin. Could you talk maybe about how you got into those positions? Because I think from the outside, there are people that glance at those jobs and think, wow, that's incredible. Um, but the And it is. However, I think the work you did to get those jobs, you've probably been doing it for for decades, right? Um, so, So how did you go about getting that you know, that first opportunity at uh, Blue Origin. I don't want to say first opportunity, but like a pretty rare opportunity.
3: No, I got you. Well, part of it is just full background. So I grew up in a science and engineering family. I grew up in a small college town in Iowa that is, it's just completely devoted to science and technology. And so that was the oxygen I breathed until I was about 20 years old. And I wasn't aware that it was unusual. So I think I just picked up uh, a kind of science and engineering mentality. Right. And then I studied uh, technical subjects when I was in college. And once my writing career got started, I uh, found that I had to do something of a more practical nature every day for – basically like the, the ideal day is to get up, spend two hours writing and spend the rest of the day working on something unrelated. And I did some, uh, some construction work um, on a project, an uh, in inn that my <clears throat> friend of mine was building and I would program. I had a Macintosh, one of the original toaster Macintoshes and I would write code on that thing. You know, I'm, have a kind of of jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none sort of background. And uh, what happened with uh, Blue Origin was that I had made Jeff's acquaintance in a random way. And he was aware that I was a space geek from way back. And uh, he um, had been thinking about starting a space company his whole life, basically. And so I kind of raised, just in a friendly conversation, I just raised the hypothetical question: What's stopping you from maybe not launching a full-fledged effort, but you could put together a, a forerunner group or a pathfinding group that would, right. you know, do some checking out some options and investigating some uh, uh, some possible ways of doing it. And um, shortly thereafter, that that came into existence. And, uh, I started trying to be helpful, uh, in that.
2: As a kid, did you ever think that, uh, private companies would be doing so much or after reading a lot of sci-fi, did you think that that was just an inevitability?
3: There's, there's plenty of both in science fiction, right? So, um, I think it seemed out of reach until comparatively recently that, um, I mean, none of the private space, uh, Companies, I think, could have gotten anywhere without big governments having spent trillions of dollars laying the groundwork. And so um, they are all kind of building on a knowledge base that, that comes out of the, the 50s, the 60s, uh, the 70s. But um, I think that there is a, there's clearly a generation of, of people in their 50s and their 40s in their 60s who grew up expectation that uh, space exploration would have, at this point, would be much, much, much farther along than it actually is. Uh, and so um, when you get to that point, you look around, you're frustrated, you don't have your Mars colony, you don't have your space station, but you've got uh, a lot of resources that are at your disposal, then it uh, it, it makes sense to, to try to just go for it, see what you can accomplish. Uh, with, with a private company.
2: Sure. And with some recent announcements from NASA and SpaceX has hit some milestones and, uh, space is becoming again, a frontier that a lot of people and a lot of Americans are looking to. Um, do you think that there is sufficient interest to get a permanent base on the moon say in, uh, you know, by 2030 let's, let's say, um, or do you think that we're Maybe on track to a moon base in the next decade, or do you think that the second we assign a date to it, it decreases the probability that it'll happen?
3: It just it depends a lot on what your definition of a base is. Yeah, good point. Space in general is dangerous because of uh, cosmic radiation and so and and solar flares. So um, if you're gonna make anything permanent where people are gonna stay for a long time, that's outside of the the Van Allen belts, uh, you need to um, shield it. And there's other issues around um, the fact that the the soil itself is dangerous, it's toxic, um, it's uh, carcinogenic, and being in less than full uh, gravity has serious long-term health effects. So in my estimation, um, you don't really get to call it a permanent base until you've solved all those problems. Sure. You need centrifuges to um, simulate full gravity. You need um, full protection from uh, from radiation. It's a big project and I think it could be done by, by 2030. But again, it's, it's a little bit of a semantic question. Right.
2: And I think that um, culturally too, there are a number of challenges that we have to figure out. Uh, I think the first one, the unacknowledged one that a lot of people don't want to consider is how do we make space into something that's not just a, uh, a sacrificial altar for people brave enough to uh, to go out there and, and uh, yeah, and explore and, t- and take those risks. Um, I think that the first explorers, it's very, very important that um, we don't put them in a situation that's, uh, yeah, that's a sacrificial altar. Um, how, how do you view, because the challenge in getting the public excited about these efforts or really anybody is you want to create media and news stories, but you don't want to create propaganda that makes people blind to all the uh the risks and the dangers, right? So so how do you think about creating new stories that are authentic as possible without devolving into propaganda for space?
3: People have a pretty good antenna for um when they're being uh told a you know an over simplified kind of story. Right. And um and it's boring, right? I mean, it's sure. just, this is not as good of a story. So, uh, uh, for example, uh, when you look at the movie Apollo 13, you know, they, they could have made uh, Apollo 12 or Apollo 14. <laughs> In a lot of ways, it would have been a similar uh, production. But Apollo 13 was a much better story uh, because things went wrong and people had to, to deal with it. Right. I think there's no real contradiction there. Gotcha.
2: And what about as a chief futurist of Magic Leap? Is there anything you can share there? Or is there any, uh, maybe um, a story about how you met the founder and why you decided to get involved?
3: Well, they um, sort of pinging me for a little while, uh, but I couldn't figure out what they were doing um, because they were in a particularly reclusive mode at the time. And they were out in Florida uh, and, um, but, um, finally they sort of came over to my house with, uh, a sword, um, <laughs> uh, which got my attention, uh, a, a reproduction of Orcrist um, from the Lord of the Rings from, from Weta, because Durable. they, they, they're sort of have a very close, like sister company relationship with Weta. Uh, so we started talking at that point and I decided to get involved because there were opportunities there to do creative work, but part and parcel of, of doing creative work is solving a bunch of technical and engineering problems that, that are typical of brand new media. So I felt like I could actually be of some use um, in that capacity Uh I signed on as Chief Futurist, um, but I told them from the very beginning that uh, I didn't just want to gaze at my navel and try to say profound things, but I actually wanted to to build something. Where I've ended up, I have a, a little department in Seattle, so a content R&D squad, and we're working on uh, creating some uh, some content for AR that is special to AR, not not a just a port of existing types of content, but something that fundamentally takes advantage of AR. So we're working on that and sort of tackling a lot of new uh, engineering problems that naturally arise when you're trying to do something like that.
2: What advice do you have for uh, original content shops or any type of story studio that wants to create things natively for magic leap or uh maybe they're creating something that they think would be a fit for your department um what's what's some good advice for them or where can they uh find out more at
3: well the uh uh, uh magic leap has a dev portal um that um has all kinds of resources uh for for exactly those kinds of, of people uh, in my group uh we created a a thing called the Goat Labs Developer Samples, which is some uh, uh, some sample uh, code that um, provides some some good fundamental tools like a debugger uh, and a uh, a thing called the Dense Mesh Adapter. It takes a scan of the surroundings and converts it into the language of game engines. So most most people who are doing anything like this are going to be working uh, with uh, a game engine, Magic Leap supports both Unity and Unreal. You learn new skills um, in order to take advantage of those um, game engines with AR. When you go into AR, you're no longer in the sort of privileged position of being able to author the world. And you can't decide where the walls are going to be, where the furniture is going to be, where the doors are going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to take what's physically there and adapt to it. And so um, that's really hard. I mean, I, I won't pretend otherwise. We're trying to make it easier with the dense mesh adapter and other tools, but you've got to be ready to um, give up a lot of the skills that you've probably developed, making games, making content for consoles and start thinking in terms of uh, Again, working with the geometry of the world as it's provided to you and adapting uh, in a smart way to that.
2: Are there any uh, team members or existing content creators working with Magic Leap that you think do an excellent job of this right now or where they're creating uh, content for AR where you feel like they're really pushing the boundaries and creating something that uh, didn't exist before?
3: Yeah, so the two flagship Pieces of of content that shipped with the uh, creator edition last year uh, that come to mind are Tonandi, which is a musical, environmental kind of application. Um, You're hearing uh, music from the Icelandic group Sigur Rós, and you're seeing algorithmically generated graphics uh, around you that sort of respond to your touch. That's amazing artistic and technical achievement.
2: Very cool. Neil, this has been awesome. Thanks for being really generous with your time. Two final questions here. First question here is, uh, so whenever you're writing a book, you obviously learn a ton of different things. Uh, is there a story or something you learned uh, about yourself or others while you were writing Fall? Um, because obviously it's a, it's a struggle to get a novel like this finished and published. Um, did you learn anything about yourself or uh, in the process that you want to share with everyone?
3: Um, interesting question. Yeah. Um... I've had a general mentality for a while that if I had multiple possible next books, I would pick the one that seemed the weirdest, like the most, (laughs) not weirdest, but the most risky or the most different from previous books. And um, I guess what I'm about to learn is whether, (laughs) whether other people find, find that interesting or have I gone too far this time?
2: How many other books are, or creative projects are you working on right now, roughly, if you were to estimate a range?
3: Well, I can only do one book at a time, so I'm pretty sure I know what is next. Gotcha. It's a thing that I've been sort of nursing along for uh, for a few years and decided to get Fall and a couple of other books out before I uh, really dove into it.
2: Sounds good. And uh, final question here, is there any new hobby or... Project or thing that's exciting right now that you're looking forward to uh, doing more of.
3: I uh, enjoy making things. Uh, I, it almost doesn't matter what you know. I've got a 3D printer. I've got a CNC router. You know, I I work with CAD software and Arduinos and stuff to make various uh, things that amuse me. Sometimes they have some legit value. Sometimes it's just me screwing around, um, but. It's all super relaxing and enjoyable for me to, to dive into uh, making a physical project that, that works.
2: I love it. Neil, thanks for joining us. And for everyone out there, go grab Fall and any one of Neil's other excellent books. See you next time.
1: Mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter, network of podcasts, and brand studio designed to accelerate learning. Head to mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like The Mission Daily, The Story, IT Visionaries, Education Trends, Marketing Trends, Future of Cities, and more. Mission Studios has worked with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katera to create custom media channels that drive results. Make sure to subscribe to the Mission's daily newsletter at mission.org.